is, are women human beings with all the rights and privileges thereof? She uh, pointed out that Sigmund Freud's famous question, what does a woman want, is uh, usually heard by a woman as something very trivial and demeaning. Because the issue is not what women want, but what does this woman want? Uh, Sayers herself uh, studied uh, classical Greek literature at Cambridge, and at one point she was asked why a woman wanted to study Aristotle. And she said, well, there's nothing in a woman's form or mind or, or the way she's put together that uh, indicates that she cannot study Aristotle. The issue is not, does a woman want to study Greek literature? The question is, does this woman want to study uh, Aristotle? And I do. No one likes to be stereotyped. Italians don't like to hear that uh, they are, am I on? Ma- am I on? Mafioso? Mofioso? Am I on now? Okay. Italians don't like to hear that uh, there's a criminal element uh, there. Uh, blacks don't like to hear that they have rhythm. Uh, Idahoans don't like to hear that they're hicks. Women don't like to hear that there are certain things that women as a class do. So the question is, what can a woman do? Well, the answer is not what she wants to do. The answer is what God wants her to do. That's the question. What does God want you, as an individual human being, man or woman, to do? Which leads us this morning to our study in Judges 4. Will you turn with me to that passage, please? We come now to the third cycle of sin, subjection, salvation. This is the story of Deborah. Judges 4, verse 1. After Ehud died, the uh, the Israelites once again did evil, literally continued to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Same story, uh, third verse. Same old, same old. Israel uh, went into decline, into apostasy and idolatry after the death of this judge that we studied last week, Ehud. So the Lord sold him into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. We've run across this name Jabin before when we studied the book of Joshua. He was the king of the northern confederation of Canaanites and uh, had his capital city at that time in Hatzor. Hatzor was uh, destroyed, raised, and burned by Joshua and his troops. This is apparently that king's successor. Jabin simply means enlightened one, and it was more, more likely a family name or a dynastic name like the Henrys and the Stuarts and the James of English and Scottish histories. So this is Jabin II, not the Jabin that uh, we looked at in in Joshua's, the story of Joshua's conquests. He's said to be the king of Hatzor, that was his capital city, and uh, he had subjugated Israel, at least the northern half of the nation. Tribes of uh, Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali. His commander was Sisera, 
Sisera's name is Greek. He probably came from the Aegean region. He was a mercenary. He came from an area that was known for military ability, prowess. And we're told that he lived in Hershothagoyim. The word in Hebrew means the smiths of the Gentiles. This was probably the place, or at least archaeologists think, this was the place where the Canaanites had their foundry, their smelter, and from which they turned out an endless stream of iron chariots and iron weapons. The Canaanites at that time had an iron monopoly. The Israelites did not possess that technology. And as a matter of fact, uh, we know from Deborah's poem, which follows, that the Israelites had been disarmed. They had no metal weapons, at least none that could be seen. There were some that were hidden away, but uh, they weren't permitted to carry sidearms. So they were, uh, they were completely subject to the uh, Canaanites. Now, what happened as a result of their supplication is that God raised up a prophetess, verse 4, Deborah, whose name means honeybee, literally a woman, a prophetess, in other words, a female prophet. The text underscores the fact that she's a woman, not to make her out as unique, but to show that it was somewhat unusual for women to be prophets. There were women prophets in Israel, Huldah, Miriam, to name only two. And in the New Testament, there were clearly women who were prophets. Paul refers to their ministry in 1 Corinthians 11 and also in chapter 14. A prophet was someone who receives direct revelation from God, either through visions or dreams or through face-to-face revelation, and who then announced that word from God to the rest of God's people. It was a high and holy calling. In Paul's listing of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, he indicates that prophecy is one of the primary gifts given to the church, one of the gifts that the church ought to seek out and uh, utilize. So she was a prophet. She received God's word directly from God like Moses. She stood face to face with God and heard his word and then proclaimed it to, uh, to Israel. She was also a wife. She's described here as the wife of Lapidoth. We don't know anything about Lapidoth, but uh, the fact that uh, she's a wife is significant. She, and, and the order of things is, is significant. She was a prophet first and she was a wife second. In other words, she did not exhaust her responsibilities in simply being a wife. We don't know if she was a mother. Nothing is said about her children, but she had responsibilities at home. So she had the difficult responsibility that some of you have in juggling the responsibilities of home, the burdens at home, with a ministry outside of her home. Now let me say again, as we've said uh, numerous times, there are a set of biblical priorities we have to maintain. Both men and women first must seek God with all their hearts. We need to put our roots down into him. We need to be growing in that relationship, as Peter puts it, growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the number one priority for both men and women. The second priority for both men and women is the home, the family. Paul makes it very clear that uh, neither uh, man or wife has any business being involved in ministry if the home is not in order. So we must focus, we must center on our, on our homes. That's the number two priority. Now that priority is given to both men and women. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, makes that abundantly clear. 
that the responsibility for child nurture is given to both father and mother. It is not the responsibility of the mother to keep the house and the home intact and the husband to go out and uh, slay dragons and, and uh, fight the battles uh, that have to be fought in the world. They are both responsible for the home. As a matter of fact, the bulk of revelation regarding the home is given to men. So both have that responsibility. That's the second priority. The third priority then is the world. And both have a responsibility to utilize their gifts within the body of Christ. Remember the time that Jesus was, um, um, he, he was interrupted by his mother and his brothers. And someone notified him that they were outside the door. And Jesus, looking at his disciples, said, who is my mother and who is my brother's? And he looked around at the assembled group, disciples and seekers, and he said, Are not these my mother and my brothers? In, our, in other words, he's pointing out that we have an extended family. We have a responsibility to minister in our homes, but there is a larger family out there, the body of Christ, that has to be ministered to. Deborah had her priorities in order. She was a prophet who received the knowledge of God. She was a wife. And then she was also a judge, as we will see. She had responsibilities outside of her home, and that was perfectly uh, legitimate. Perhaps in her life, as in so many lives, there are seasons where we have to focus, at least temporarily, on one or the other. But she had all three of these priorities in order. She was, according to the NIV, leading Israel at that time. It's the word for judge that we've seen before. In the book of Judges. It should be noted that Deborah is the judge in this case, not Barak. We're accustomed to numbering Barak with the other judges. Gideon, Samson, uh, Jephthah, and uh, Ehud, these were the judges. But Barak is never called a judge in this story. He was the commander of uh, Israel's troops, at least the northern uh, tribes the troops from the northern tribes, but he is not a judge. Deborah is a judge. The NIV is right in putting Deborah's name as the title of this, of this section. She is the judge. And one of the significant things about her ministry is that Israelites, both men and women at that time, bypassed the sanctuary at Shiloh where the ark was located and where the priests and Levites ministered in order to come to her. Apparently there was no wisdom in Shiloh. And so they came to this woman who sat under her palm tree, honeybee, who sat under her palm tree and dispensed wisdom. She settled disputes. As we've seen before, a judge is something of a champion, someone who sees wrong and does something about it. That was her role. She was, as Proverbs would say, a woman of great strength and dignity. Uh, we're told that she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. Verse 6, she sent for Barak, son of Abinuam, from Kadesh in Naphtali. Kadesh was about 50 miles north of Deborah's palm tree. And she sent for this uh, young man. We do not know anything about Barak other than what's written here was the son of Abinoam. We know nothing about Abinoam. Uh, he is listed in Hebrews Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. It's significant that he's there, as we'll see in a moment. He stands as a premier example of one who learned to believe God for, for great things. But we don't know much about him. 
we do know that he had already received a prior word from the Lord because the next verse could better be translated. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor? I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. God had already revealed himself to this young man, and he had, as we say, wimped out. He did not want to go. He did not want to uh, assume command of Israel's army. And so she called him. She summoned him. A remarkable amount of authority in this woman's hands. And she reminded him of what God had said. Take the 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun. Apparently that's all the army they could muster. And literally move stealthily to Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is a little cone-shaped mountain about a 1,000 feet in in altitude above the uh, surrounding terrain. It overlooks the valley of Esdraelon. And uh, it's quite exposed. It would be ill-advised, I would think, to to muster an army at that hill because it would be very easy to cut off every escape route. Israel's army was ill-equipped. They were untrained. They had no uh, trained officers. They had few weapons, and they would be exposed on this mountainside. But, but Deborah's counsel came from God, and so she she enlists um, Barak in this enterprise. She puts some starch in this young commander's spine, and she reminds him that God has given him this directive, and he is promised that God will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. The Kishon's a little wadi, a little dry gulch that runs from the foot of Mount Tabor northwest through the valley of Esdraelon and empties into the Mediterranean Sea. It only flows in the spring and the fall during the early and latter rains. The rest of the time it's, it's dry. And so Sisera felt confident in bringing out his chariots. He would not have done so during the rainy season. It would have been very foolish. Uh, the chariots in those days were used like shock troops, somewhat like uh, cavalry or tanks today. They usually preceded the foot soldiers into battle. There were three men who armed these chariots. One was the driver, one was a bowman, or carried a spear, and the third carried a huge uh, shield to protect the other two men in, in the chariot. And fastened to the wheels were three or four foot long sides, which they would run into the foot soldiers. They would lead the charge into the the advancing army. It was not a good thing to be in the way. And uh, it would, uh, it would, Cicero was was very wise in bringing out his chariots on the valley. Uh, Barak, well, it seems ill advised that he was up on the side of the mountain exposing himself and he had to charge right into the teeth of this chariot charge. And yet this was uh, God's strategy. And as Deborah assures him, God is going to give him into your hands. There's something significant about bringing him to the Kishon River. There's a hint of things to come in that statement. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't go with me, I won't go. Some of the commentators say again that Barak wimped out at this point, but I don't think so. I think this was an extremely wise decision. This was a woman that knew God. 
This was a woman that talked to God face to face. A man would have to be some kind of natural born fool to leave her at home. He needed her. He needed the wisdom and the counsel that she could uh, that she could bring to that situation. And so he basically he said uh, what Moses said at one point in his life to God: "If you don't go with me, I'm not going." And he says to this uh, wise woman, "I'll go. I'll go if you'll go with me." And so she promised to uh, do so. There's a actually a not a translation but an interpretation in the in the New uh, English version. When we're told, uh, they translate in verse 9, very well, I'll go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. If you look at the footnote, it says, uh, on the expedition you're undertaking. So she's not casting aspersion upon his decision to take her, uh, take her with him. He's simply saying that you should understand that you'll not receive honor for this uh, victory the Lord will handle will hand Cicero, Cicero over to a woman, and we say, "Oh, Deborah, yes, Deborah, she'll receive the honor." But this this storyteller tells his tale with consummate skill. He sets us up for a surprise ending, as we'll uh, as we'll see. So Deborah went with Barak uh, to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, the two tribes that were hardest hit by Canaanite oppression. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. So he had 10,000 men and one woman in his army. The historian adds a a footnote here, verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'ananim near Kedesh. I practiced all week to say that. Uh, This seems out of place. It's simply, um, again, setting us up for something to happen later on. The Kenites were a Bedouin tribe that had settled in the southern part of the territory of uh, Judah. Uh, One of them, Hobab, was Moses' father-in-law. They were a wild uh, Arab tribe, uh, nominally friendly with the Canaanites, but vitally related to Israel through her God. They were worshipers of the Lord God of of Israel. And the historian simply puts this note in here to let us, um, to give us some sense of anticipation as the story unfolds. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 chariots and all the men with him from Harosheth Hagoyim, to the Kishon River. They gathered on the upper end of the valley of Esdraelon and began their charge down the valley. And Deborah said to Barak, Go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Now you have to imagine what went through Barak's mind. He had 10,000 men. He was on the side of a hill uh, to charge right into the teeth of the Canaanite advance right into their chariots. And Deborah says, go, go for it. And Deborah went, and Barak went. He charged down that hill with his rough riders behind him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Horosheth All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. 
Now, Deborah had said in our verse 14 that, that the Lord would go ahead of Barak. So uh, the Lord was actually leading the charge down that hill. And Barak was simply following him. And his 10,000, inspired by his faith, followed him. And uh, prior to uh, the beginning of the battle, before they joined battle, Deborah had said to Barak, See, in Hebrew, look, the Lord has gone before you. And then uh, the Canaanites, were told, were routed. That's a word that's used sparingly in the Old Testament. It's used in one instance where the Egyptians were routed as they tried to cross the Red Sea uh, when they were pursuing the Israelites. And it's a word that has to do with God's miraculous interventions in history in order to overthrow Israel's enemies. Now, what happened? Well, the historian doesn't really tell us what happened, but Deborah does in the poem which he wrote, which follows in chapter 5. Let's look at uh, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. She identifies Mount Tabor with Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was the place where God revealed himself, revealed his character to Israel. On Mount Tabor, the same thing occurred. God was revealed in a special way to Israel at Mount Tabor. What happened? Well, we get a hint here in her statement that the heavens poured water, the clouds poured down rain, the mountains quaked before the Lord. There's a further explanation of, of, the, uh, of the way God fought uh, for his people in verses 19 and following. The kings came, that is, the Canaanite kings came. Uh, the kings of Canaan fought at Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo, Ta'anak's so one of the cities in which the conflict took place, just about five miles from Mount Tabor. But they carried off no silver, no plunder. From the heavens, the stars fought, that is, the forces of heaven, fought on the side of God's people. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, O my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hoofs, galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds. Now, this is poetry, and poetry is notoriously difficult to interpret, but uh, one thing becomes very clear. God fought for Israel by sending a rainstorm. This is what happened. As uh, Deborah stood on the top of Mount Tabor, and she looked across the valley of Israel and off to the southeast, she saw clouds begin to form across the Jordan. That's why she mentioned Seir and Edom. Those uh, Seir is a town, Edom is uh, the country of Edom. Just across the Jordan River, she saw storm clouds begin to mass. It was highly unusual in that part of the country because rainstorms don't come from the east. They come from the west. They come from the Mediterranean. Clouds advanced over the valley of Israel. This was not the time of rains. This was dry season. It began to rain. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that it began to sleet. And the sleet flew right into the face of... Uh, of uh, Sisera's archers and, and charioteers, and they became disoriented. Then it began to rain, rain harder and harder. Finally, became a cloudburst, and the chariots began to bog down in the mud in in the valley of Esdraelon. Charioteers turned the horses, tried to escape. You can almost hear them lashing the horses. You can hear the galloping of the horses' feet in this poem. Horses panicked. 
They turned around. They ran through their own troops. These terrible scythes began to mow soldiers down right and left. The Canaanite soldiers panicked, threw down their arms, ran for their lives, and uh, tried to escape across the Kishon and uh, could not. They were swept away by, by the torrent of the Kishon, and the Canaanite force was annihilated. All because this woman had put some starch into this man's spine. The, uh, the, the historian, the prose historian, puts things in perspective in verse 23 of chapter 4 when he says, On that day God subdued Jabin. He gives credit where credit is due. Now, in the mopping up operation in verses 17 and following, we're told that Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hatzor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Have I, am I off? Okay. Let's just leave it where it is, even if it booms a little bit, because it's a little hard to um, keep my brain together. Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of uh, Heber. We've, we've already noticed Heber early on in the narrative. This was the uh, encampment of Arabs to which this man fled. They were friendly to the Canaanites. There was the law of hospitality in the ancient East that demanded that uh, hospitality be shown to travelers. There was also the, uh, the, the convention that no one would peek into the tent of a woman and so this man thought that he was he was safe now here is a man who did hide behind a woman's skirts there's an interesting pun in the hebrew uh this man says to her if anyone comes and says is there in the text say anyone here you shall say no the text actually says if someone comes and asks if there is a man here you shall say no are you a man or a mouse squeak up that's the idea no man there. He was hiding. And uh, this, is what, uh, this is what happened. Uh, he said to her, I'm thirsty. Verse 19, please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is any man here, say no. But Jael, Hebrew's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay asleep. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. As we say, he never knew what hit him. J.L. said, nothing like this ever entered my mind before. In the uh, poetic section that follows, she is blessed for this deed. Verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women, that is, of Bedouin women. He asked for water, and she gave him milk, uh, kind of thickened milk, yogurt, that it was mildly uh, soporific. It would put, tend to put him to sleep. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. He was totally unsuspecting. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer, Women normally put up tents in those days, and this was the mallet that was used to drive the iron stakes that held up the tents. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. 
She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered. She pierced his temple. You can almost hear the mallet strokes as she drives the stake into the ground. At her feet he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet he sank. There he fell. Dead. Something grand and terrible about this moment. (laughs) She... um, is acting, of course, in defense of her God. She worshipped the Lord God of Israel. She was an Arab woman. She was used to great violence. This was simply her way of dealing with, uh, with, with uh, Sisera. It's interesting that the Bible does not judge her, does not condemn her. It simply uh, gives us the impression that this terrible mallet was actually the sword of the Lord. It was the means by which a vengeance was, was carried out. We're told that when Barak arrived, looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, verse 22, chapter 4. I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent pegged through his temple, dead. You can imagine that scene. She led um, Barak to the tent. She pulled back the flaps, showed him the gory spectacle. And he turned silently away. And it was true. He did not receive the honor of this victory. A, a woman was the one who, uh, who was praised. But on that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king. I want to call your attention to one other reference here in just the moment or two that we have left. Verse 6 of chapter 5. This poem is ex- Exceedingly interesting. It's one of the oldest poems known in any literature in any part of the world. It goes, it's certainly contemporaneous with the events, which would be 12th century BC, and uh, a bit difficult to follow at times. But um, I would like to read verse six through nine. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Jael, Shamgar was the man that Chris talked about last week who killed a number of Philistines with an ox code. In the days of Jael, whom we've, whose story we've already considered, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Uh, there was no trade in Israel under Canaanite uh, rule. The caravans were stopped. People were unable to travel freely from village to village. They had to skulk about uh, and, and hide. They took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. In other words, there were no one walled cities. No one was able to farm. They had to live in walled cities to protect themselves. Until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother. A mother in Israel. That's a very interesting statement. A mother in Israel. What does she mean? Does it mean that uh, she had children? Well, we, we don't know. Perhaps she did. Uh, having many children was highly prized in those days. Perhaps she had many children. But nothing is said in this passage about her children. Secondly, we're not told that she was a mother in her home. We're told that she was a mother in Israel, which would suggest a matriarchal role in the nation. Abraham, incidentally, is called the father of the nation. Here is one who is a mother of the nation. Here's one who 
because of her relationship to God and because of her faith, was, in, was able to instill courage in one of Israel's commanders, stir him up to faith and good works, and lead him into a, an act of brave, courageous obedience by which Canaan, the back of Canaanite oppression was, was broken. This is a woman that had, a, had vast influence in her nation. She was not merely a mother in her family. She was a mother in, in Israel, had that, that sort of matriarchal rule. Now, that's very interesting because it gives us some idea of what a woman can do. Now, the question is always is what, not what can women do. Women can do anything God wants them to do. That's the question. The question for you is what does God want you to do? Perhaps for right now, during this season of your life, much of your time is spent at homemaking, and you have to center on your home. But that doesn't mean that you can't use your gifts outside your home. You can invite people into your home and minister to them there. That's another way of, of equipping your children for life, teaching them what it means to serve the body of Christ, teaching them to use their gifts within the body and, and outside of the body. You see, families can be selfish and self-centered, just like individuals can. And if we're spending all of our time centering on our family and ministering to our family, we have no vision for touching the world outside. We're teaching our children to think in terms of me, myself, and I, and my house, and my immediate family, you see. Now, again, we have to maintain these priorities. Very important that we do so. God first, family second, and then ministry to the world. But the very fact that you're a mother does not preclude ministry to the body of Christ at large. And as you uh, grow older and your children grow older and you have fewer and fewer responsibilities in, that, in your home, then that means that you can, you can spend more and more of your time, more of your energy and efforts, to, uh, utilizing your gifts outside the home. Because there is an extended family out there of men and women and children that can be ministered to. Those of you that have no children, that are childless, those of you that are single, can be a mother in Israel in that sense, investing your lives in, in other men and, and women who need the wisdom that God has imparted to you. And God forbid that any of us men should ever encourage, discourage our women from, from doing so. God forbid that we would ever refuse to listen to them. Uh, there are some men who say, oh, you know, woman, they can't teach me anything. They wouldn't say that out loud, but... In their spirit, that very often is, is the attitude that, that they manifest. But how foolish we are not to listen to these wise women that God has given to us. Our wives, others that surround us in the body of Christ who know God, who love him, and who are able to impart the truth to us. To me, it's very significant that wisdom in the book of Proverbs is personified as a woman. There must be something very significant about that. Perhaps they have a particular penchant for wisdom. I don't know. But nevertheless, we are very foolish to disregard the wisdom that God has imparted to these women. So what does God want a woman to do? That's not the question. What does God want you to do? What does that mean? Be a head of state? Nothing wrong with that. You know, it's tragic to me that uh, someone like, like Margaret Thatcher can be Prime Minister of the uh, British Isles and exert an enormous amount of leadership in that place. And in most churches, she couldn't even serve. serve. She wouldn't be acceptable. We take that attitude to our own loss, you see. 
And uh, so, you know, it may be that God wants you to be a head of state. It may be that God wants you to uh, be the head of industry or to be in some responsible position in education and to be salt and light in that place. But more importantly, God wants you to use your gifts within the body of Christ. That's the greatest thing that you can do. If God makes you president of the United States, praise the Lord. But if God uses you to teach a group of women the truth that God has imparted you, or if he uses you to lead some woman to Christ in your neighborhood who's desperately looking for for life, whatever it is that God leads you to do within the body of Christ, that's an even greater thing than you could accomplish out in the world of industry and commerce and education and in politics. A lot of women are, are feeling very restless and they don't know what to do with themselves. And they're thinking, I, want to go, I need to go back to school or I need to run uh, for the legislature or uh, I want to get a job so, and so I can, uh, can do something with my life and make something of myself. No, just, just sit at God's feet. Listen to him. Asking me what he wants you to do within the body of Christ. And then began to fulfill his plan, his, his wonderful design and plan for you there. Let's pray. Lord, as men, we ask that we would, uh, we would honor the women among us, as Peter said, that we would grant them honor as heirs together with us of life. Not uh, many disciples, but full-fledged disciples, followers of you who can utilize their gifts in order to strengthen the body. Lord, give us the grace and the humility to listen to what they have to say and uh, to hear your words as they come through them. And I pray for the women in this body that they would increasingly find your place for them within uh, within this church. Help them to utilize their gifts to the fullest extent and to do so according to the measure of faith that's given to them and according to the power of the Holy Spirit. These things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed.